Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, where we explore human life with technology. I'm Lee Vinsel. Hey, everybody. You know what? I have decided that I do not really need to do an opening monologue for this episode on writer Cory Doctorow's new novel, Red Team Blues, and featuring our first guest host, historian and sociologist Aaron Beninov, author of Automation and the Future of Work, because how we begin the episode sets up the context for the conversation so well. So I hope you enjoy our conversation, which was a lot of fun for us. And you know what else I hope? I hope you get excited. My guest today is writer Cory Doctorow, the author of over 20 books, including several bestsellers and multi-award winners, and special advisor to the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Today, our conversation will focus on his new novel, a taut neo-noir techno-thriller called Red Team Blues. But we'll also be trying to put that work in the context of Cory's longer career in thinking, and we'll be talking to him about how he thinks about the nature of technology, politics, economics, power, all the good stuff. It's a big job, but mercifully, I will have help along the way. In an exciting moment for Peoples and Things, this is the first in a series of planned episodes where we'll have a guest host. Today, that person is Aaron Beninov, an assistant professor of sociology and a senior research associate of the Autonomous Systems Policy Institute at Syracuse University, that's right, folks. If you hadn't heard it before, Bananov has is no longer a historian, but has become a sociologist. May the angels weep. Aaron is the author of the book Automation and the Future of Work, which everyone should be checking out if they care about the relationship between, say, AI and robots and economies. And you can also check out my review of that book on HNET. I met Aaron in person for the first time a few months ago, and over breakfast, we were talking about his new book project on post-scarcity economies. And one of the authors we discussed in that conversation was none other than Cory Doctorow. So when the opportunity to interview Cory came up, I thought it would be great to bring Aaron into the chat. Aaron, can you tell Cory and listeners about your uh, current book project on post-scarcity economies and what you're planning on doing with it? Sure. And Lee, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be part of a conversation about Corey, who's, uh, whose science fiction writing has been a huge influence on my thinking. And um, the, book, uh, the book I'm working on now about post-scarcity economics is really about uh, the relationship between economics, technology, unmet human needs. And um, I guess a core idea of the book is to think about how uh, the way that economics teaches us to think about scarcity, to think about it as a conflict between the insatiability of human wants and desires on the one hand and the limits of our resources and technologies on the other, has inspired this really um, exciting and kind of forward-looking uh, science fiction worlds um, that have also had a big influence on technologists. So, you know, if you, if you look at... Uh, Elon Musk, you know, he was naming his SpaceX rockets after um, after the spaceships from the Ian and Banks culture series and so on. You know, uh, <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg once said that Player of Games was one of his favorite books. So like these, these are really affecting or shaping somehow the worlds that we inhabit. But I also think that there's something um, very limited about the way that economics gets us to think about scarcity and technology. And I think Corey's uh, books, especially books like uh, down and out in the Magic Kingdom and walk away, get at some of those limitations. And one of the ways that I, I think about that is that, you know, in, in some of uh, Corey's post-scarcity books, like people do live in a world where they've overcome all resource limitations. They're not even, you know, death has been abolished. And yet what happens? Like, are people fully fulfilled? Do they just live lives of pleasure? No, in fact, 
you know, it turns out that the human search for meaning, the potential for conflict over something as, you know, seemingly insignificant, but if you meet people who love Disney World, something really significant, which is like, what <laughs> happens to the rides? What happens to the rides in Disney World? How do we yeah. preserve and develop them? You know, it speaks to an idea about what human needs are and how to meet them that I think goes beyond actually what current economics can uh, can speak to us about. But I think that, you know, future economics and a future vision of the world would really have to take into account that larger conception of what human beings are after and what we should be using our resources to achieve. So that's, I don't know, that's like a little yeah, introduction perfect, to those themes. Yeah, and these themes are going to come up a lot in our conversation. We're going to have a lot of fun today together. This is great. So, Corey, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to Aaron and me today. It's uh, my pleasure. Wow, that that was very exciting to hear. I, the Ian Banks thing uh, and Musk is just wild. He actually once blocked me on Twitter because I, I said <laughs> when he was talking about this, because I said, uh, you know, I knew Ian and he was an ardent trade unionist and the NLRB is investigating you right now. I don't think you get to call yourself a utopian socialist in the model of Ian Banks when you're doing that. And he said, um, well, I didn't see any unions in the culture novels. Uh, if, if Banks <laughs> if Banks could have seen can see what a Tesla factory looks like, he wouldn't be uh, a union advocate for us either. And I said, you know, there is a world of difference between, uh, you know, trillion person spaceships that travel at hundreds of times the speed of light crewed by super intelligent artificial intelligences and eking out minor improvements in the production of electric cars. And he called me <laughs> an enemy of humanity and blocked me. <laughs> <laughs> oh man the ironies are so thick you could spread them on a cracker oh there. my gosh so Corey, we can't wait to talk to you about red team blues you know you're on a you're on a kind of tour right now you know when you're talking explaining it to strangers what do you say about it and what were you trying to do with it what you led you to write it well it depends on on whether the stranger is already familiar with my work or not uh yeah you know and when i'm in a i've been on a book tour so i'm taking a lot of taxis and a lot of cab drivers are like what was it the bookstore and i say well, i was there giving a presentation and so they say what's the book about and i say it's a crime thriller about Silicon Valley scams. And if they're still interested, I say it's about a 67-year-old forensic accountant who spent 40 years fighting high-tech scams and whose last big adventure is unwinding a scam uh, that has to do with stealing a billion dollars worth of cryptocurrency that gets him in the middle of a mob war that is also uh, implicates a bunch of corrupt U.S. three-letter agencies. And at that point, they're, they're, they're either like, well, that's interesting, I'm going to turn my stereo back on, or we end up talking about the book. Uh, if it's people <laughs> who are more familiar with my work, you know, I, I tend to situate it as, as like a techno thriller and say, um, you know, th this is... Uh, uh, a book that's kind of a companion to the Little Brother series I wrote about a 17-year-old in Silicon Valley who is living at the sharp edge of how technology can both give you more self-determination and take it away. This is about a 67-year-old who's been fighting that fight for 40 years and um, is, is no longer fighting to keep what he values but uh, uh, is sort of fighting to get back what he lost uh, and it's a story about how finance curdled the dream of technology as a force for human liberation. Um, and so, yeah, that's 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 how I talk about it. Yeah, that's nice. Aaron, do you have any first cuts on that? Well, I really I, I think later on we should, we'll talk a lot about um, the idea of what you just said, how finance curdled the potential of technology to liberate people. because I think that's a really important uh, aspect of the book. But do you think, I mean, I, I was very curious about, um, you know, your turn to writing about a 67-year-old man who's on the verge of retirement. Like, is this, you know, are you trying to tell us something about your own? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, well, this, uh, like, is this your retirement series, Corey? Yeah. What's going on here? Is this you know, goodbye? <laughs> I am not an angry young man anymore. I am now an angry yeah. old man. I am 51 years old. I have two artificial hips. As soon as I can clear some schedule time from book touring, because I have seven more books coming out, um, I need to get two cataracts removed. Uh, my my goal is to have all my body mods done before civilization collapses. Uh, and um, I am no longer 
listening to my elders tell me about how the fights that I'm engaged with are connected to fights that happened in the decades before. And now I am finding myself increasingly in the role of talking to younger activists mm -hmm. about how things like the broadcast flag and early net neutrality peering arrangements, um, the uh, questions about warrantless access to email and intermediary liability, how all of these things came about, and also trying to revive the imagination of um, critical technologists. And, you know, Lee, I think this is where my work intersects with yours some, because the, the, uh, there is in the techno-critical world a kind of um, amnesia about what we did have and what we might have again. There is a species of techno-criticism that says that Facebook is like the apotheosis of how we'll talk to our friends on the internet. And to fix the way we talk to our friends, we have to fix Facebook and not abolish <laughs> Facebook, right? Um, that, that We see this a little in the European Union where they pass some landmark legislation, the, the Digital Markets Act, that requires interoperability for large services. And it has kind of got a, a list, a priority ranked list of where they're going to impose those interoperability obligations. And they started with end-to-end -end encrypted instant messaging, which is like just a, a weird and, and really dangerous place to start because encryption in instant messaging has been a hot potato since the Clinton years, right? Since since the Clipper chip yeah. fight about banning encryption, banning working encryption. In 1992, the Electronic Frontier Foundation won the Bernstein case in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals that found that code was a form of expressive speech protected by the First Amendment. And so the NSA's ban on working crypto violated the First Amendment. Part of that was building a computer that could brute force the... Um, the uh, uh, cipher that the NSA wanted people to have, uh, that computer is called Deep Crack and it is sitting next to me. Uh, John Gilmore, who <laughs> built it, was tired of having it in his garage and asked me if I wanted to become its steward. So I am sitting next to a thing the size of a bar fridge filled with things that look like cryptocurrency miners. They're ASICs, right? Massively parallel things. So the, the stuff just keeps coming back around and around. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, you know, the European Union is going after end-to-end -end encrypted messaging, even though a small error could put people all over the world at risk. Remember, it was an error in WhatsApp in the code that allowed the NSO group to build a cyber weapon that the Saudis used to lure Jamal Khashoggi to his death. Uh, and you could hmm. completely discredit the whole project of interoperability by introducing a small error. They're trying to do it on this really short timeline. And a lot of people are wondering, like, how is it that the European Union is starting there and not with something like that feels like much lower hanging fruit, like social media? And my theory is that maybe, yeah, there's like spooks or, or cops in the European bureaucracy who want defects in secure instant messaging. But I also think that like, if you're like the median Eurocrat, you know what it's like to take your phone with a German SIM to Brussels and send a message to a Dutch colleague on holiday in Spain and just have it delivered. And you think, oh, interoperable instant messaging must be very easy because I experience it every day. Of course, SMS is a fucking dumpster fire and like it is so dangerous and bad and needs to be killed with fire. Um, whereas, you know, these people like either are too young or were not technically mm -hmm. advanced enough to have ever used something like Usenet or FidoNet where you had federated social spaces. And mm -hmm. for them, it's like water that's not wet. How would you have a social space that was not governed over by someone like Mark Zuckerberg or Elon <laughs> Musk or whatever, right? And um, they are just, it's it's just a blank for them. And so they're starting with the thing that's hardest and least urgent and has the highest likelihood of destroying the whole project. And they're leaving to one side this this very obvious and very urgent project of, of making social media more interoperable. Um, and, you know, to watch them do it is is baffling. I actually made a piece of design fiction called Interoperable Facebook with EFF that's basically a... Um, a user manual for a fictional version of Facebook that has been forcibly federated by regulators. And it's hmm. about how you as the end user would use it, how it would be compatible with privacy law and so on. Because um, I really feel like we've had this, this great extinction of memory of what we can hmm. do with technology. 
And now we just, it's like people arguing about how we resolve the climate emergency by arguing about what price carbon should have instead of arguing about whether or not certain activities should be permitted at all. Mm -hmm. And, and I am, I am here to try and make this, uh, debate more robust and historically informed. And, and that I think is what it means to be an old person in this <laughs> fight, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, so I, just to get a couple more playing pieces from the book on the table. Um, well, I mean, Aaron, you really liked the kind of heterodox economist character Raza. So, I mean, yeah. Talk about that for a second. Uh, Aaron, go ahead. I mean, what oh, yeah. about Raza? Yeah, I was really curious about that feature of the book. Like one one of the kind of themes of the book is that the main character, Martin Hench, he's been living and working as a forensic accountant, kind of like looking at how money moves and tracing its movement through cryptocurrencies and fiat currencies all across the world uh, to tax havens and into different mobsters' accounts and so on. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, towards the end of the book, or really, you know, one of the, one of the characters of the book um, who he's friends with is Raza, his, his heterodox economist friend. And I'm kind of curious, like, who the inspiration for that was, if you're thinking of a particular, if Raza is a, a kind of, a, um, you know, if she's a, a, you know, doctrinaire of like a particular heterodox <laughs> framework or, yeah. you know, and, and it, it provides a kind of, in some strange way, it provides a kind of key you know, there's a key yeah. there to the book, yeah. but the the readers are yeah. are kind of in some way they're not. Martin's given the key, but in some way the readers are not. So I was wondering if you could talk about that. Well, yeah, Raza is kind of an amalgam, at least uh, intellectually, of of two people I have a lot of time for. One is Stephanie Kelton, the woman who wrote the Deficit Myth. She was the she ran economic policy for Sanders, uh, t teaches in New York, uh, and Kelton is a, a modern monetary theorist. Uh, I know that this is an idea that the left is skeptical of. Uh, I think that as like, um, even if you don't buy the prescriptions of MMT, which fair enough, they're they're up for debate, that normative stuff about MM MMT, where they say like, the wh where money comes from is governments spend it into existence. And then when they tax money, they throw the taxes away and then they make new money. Like, that's just not up for debate. That is, like, literally how it works, right? And there are some yeah. profound implications for leftist projects that, that revolve around that. But you don't have to, like, buy those implications or even care about them to just say, like, this is just true, right? we got to stop talking about federally funded projects as being funded with taxpayers' money. It's not funded with taxpayers' money, not least because the implication of something that's funded with taxpayers' money is the more tax you have, the more you're entitled to, right? It becomes like a frequent buyer club for, for federal pro programs, which means that nobody should ever get food stamps because like by definition, people who get food stamps are, are not paying a lot of federal tax. And so like they're not entitled, they haven't, they haven't bought 10 boba teas. They don't get the 11th one for free, right? That's, that's just something Warren Buffett should get, you know, not that he pays any federal tax. Um, but but one of the other critiques of, of modern monetary theory, especially from the left, is that it doesn't have any um, application outside of the American empire, that, that it particularly doesn't apply in the global south. And there you have the other part intellectually of Raz's, uh, um, you know, kind of inspiration, which is Fidel Kaboob, who's, I believe, Tunisian theorist of MMT, who's written a lot about decolonization and MMT. Hmm. And, and the role in particular that debts denominated in foreign currencies have mm -hmm. in, in retarding projects of post-colonial independence, right? If you, if you need dollars to service the debts the IMF imposed on you, or, you know, Franks, if you're Haiti, to, to pay France for the freedom of the people who bought their way out of slavery and paid until the 1980s to pay off that debt, um, then you have to sell the things that you could otherwise use to countries that have dollars in order to cover those debts, which means that you just drain your own coffers, you drain your own real resources to do this. Um, in terms of the role she plays in the book, you know, one of the things about MMT and, uh, and its relationship to orthodox economics is MMT grows out of accounting, right? It, like the way that MMT thinks about money is as a series of accounting identities, like what is in the ledger, 
right? What what number do you put here? What number do you put there? And what relationship do they have to each other? That's the core of MMT. It's weirdly connected to cryptocurrency and its obsession with ledgers. Um, and accounting is the blue collar end of economics, right? Economics is the elite white collar part of of um of of the uh, trade, right? But but bookkeeping and its big brother accounting, that's a thing working class people do, right? And and it is a, a thing that working class people have a connection to too, right? We we you know we all know a bookkeeper helps us with our taxes or whatever. Um, and so in terms of thinking about what economics and other elite technical uh, um, uh, endeavors like technology itself like computers and networks and so on what they what they do for us and whose perspective is considered when they're mm. designed and discussed um, accounting has a lot more connection to the lives of everyday working people than economics does there's this famous line that if an economist wanted to know about horses they wouldn't they wouldn't go out and look at a horse they would sit in their study and ask themselves if i were a horse what would i do Right. And uh, accountants don't have that luxury. Right. Accountants live in the in the in the details of how this stuff works. Accountants have conversations with business people who say, well, why isn't my cocaine habit a, an allowable expense? <laughs> right. And 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 have to actually like address that question. So, you know, M Marty Hench, like the the protagonist of this book, his story is that he moves out to Silicon Valley in the 80s after dropping out of MIT uh, and going to a two-year accounting program in order to uh, kind of live his obsession with computers and their potential and has for 40 years tried to nurse that hope and excitement even as over and over again through his role as an accountant, he's found all the bad things that yeah. technologists and their enablers do with money. I mean, basically, his story is that when he was 18 years old, he enrolls in an accounting program and discovers a bunch of people who are excited about how they're going to use spreadsheets to hide money. And he's like, I'm going to use them to find money because I'm smarter than you guys. And and that's where he's been, right? He's been playing the red team. He's been finding the one mistake they made and unraveling it through very complex and competent, um, uh, very diligent study of what they do, just checking all the numbers, checking all the columns. There's the someone uh, the other day, Annalie knew it's called this competence porn, not in a not in a negative way. It's a it's a despite the word porn in there, it is a uh, um, it is a uh, not necessarily a uh, a negative way of talking about literature when we say competence porn. And he is very competent and his competence is being very careful and being very knowledgeable. Right. And it's um, I'm just writing an editorial this morning about the California Public Utilities Commission discovering that it has the legislative authority, the regulatory authority to end all prison price gouging for calls, video visits, and scanned letters, right? This is a thing the feds have really struggled to regulate for years and years, um, but uh, the California PUC can do it, right? And they've opened, they've opened hearings. And it's like, there's this very disheartening thing, right? Where where something terrible is being done by a company and a regulator steps up and says, we will end this. And then it goes in front of a judge and the judge says, I'm sorry, you don't have the power to do that. I'm just throwing this out, right? And and it just makes you feel like, oh, they've rigged the game, right? Like since Reagan, they've just gone through and they've gutted the legislative authority, the regulatory authority of everyone who could intercede between us and companies. And all we have is like voting with our wallets, which means rich people get more votes than we do. And uh, then you find these people, I call them photocopier kickers after that joke, right? 75 bucks to kick the photocopier? No, kicking the photocopier costs a dollar. $74 is knowing where on the photocopier to kick, right? These photocopier kickers who just know exactly where the authority is and how to use it. And that's what Marty is. He's a photocopier kicker. He's just like really good at being very careful and reading all the documents. I think of that scene in um, the terrible uh, Batman and Robin movie where uh, the penguin, I think played by Danny DeVito, reveals that he's got the documents that reveal the the secret plot that was uh, that's going to bring down the, the governor or the senator, whoever it is, because he shredded them and flushed them down the toilet. And of course, he lives in the sewers and he has found <laughs> the shreds 
And, and he says, all it took was 10 years and a lot of sticky tape. And he holds up these sheets of paper that have been painstakingly taped back together. Um, you know, Marty has got that kind of uh, Six Sigma limbic capacity to be very careful and methodical and not get bored and just do this stuff that yeah. like so many times on the Internet we see uh, emerging as a kind of superpower, you know? Yeah, yeah. And yet, like with the Raza character, it's interesting because... I think you're also, I mean, M Marty's very limited in all kinds of ways. You know what I mean? He's a very, he's a human. And mm -hmm. in, one of the ways, though, is that this accounting work he's done has given him very a good sense of the details and where all the bodies are lying. But he kind of misses the big picture, right? And so that yeah. was one thing I was, like, he doesn't yeah. see the big picture. He's down in the economies. weeds. And Roz is, yeah. Roz is up in the clouds. And, you know, this is the macro-micro split among all economists, right? Uh, are you thinking about how the argument proceeds in the boardroom? Or are you thinking about how the policy emanates from the from the apparatus of state? So, yeah, he's very much in the weeds. And then the other thing about him is it's not just Raza. Marty doesn't solve a single problem on his own. Like, nowhere in this book does he solve any problem on his own. He relies on this ensemble of other people who help him out. And in that regard, I think he's a departure from the typical noir hero who mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, like, yes, this is competence porn. But one of the things he's competent at is recognizing when he needs help from other people mm -hmm. and and approaching those people with humility and and taking their help. Uh, this is a point that Paul Filippo made in his review in Locust magazine. I, and, you know, one of the most exciting things as a writer is reviewers who find things that are undeniably true about your book, but that you didn't know. And this is definitely one of those things where I hadn't really thought about that, but it's absolutely true. And, and you know, I, I think it's a theme that runs through a lot of my work. You know, you mentioned walk away earlier, Ben, Aaron, it's, um, you know, all the characters in walk away solve problems as an ensemble that nobody, nobody is, um, you know, the single competent man, you know, there's no, there's no, uh, in fact, the, all the villains in this book and in walk away. And in most of my books are people who fancy themselves, the heroes of Ayn Rand novels, right. Who, who <laughs> have a singular vision and are just going to solve the problem on their own. Everybody else has to shut the fuck up and get out of their way. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, speaking of the Ayn Rand, uh, worshipers, there's something, you know, in the acknowledgements to the book, you, you acknowledge all the people who helped you along the way, but then you give a special thanks to the crypto grifters yeah. for uh, giving you <laughs> such fertile, fertile soil to plow. And I was wondering, you know, there's there's a lot here about uh, crypto and, and there's a beautiful uh, way that the book is able to move between the crypto grifters and money launderers who are, you know, hiding money all around the world with, with these uh, crypto tools and then you know the 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 day-to-day -day life of all of the homeless people in san francisco there's a lot of attention focused on the opposition between great wealth that's hidden and incredible uh, uh and ubiquitous poverty um but yeah i was wondering if you could if you could say a little bit more about you know sometimes it feels like the book is like a, a hate a hate re a, a spite book <laughs> about <laughs> how crypto took over uh, and how, as you mentioned before, crypto finance in particular yeah. has kind mm -hmm. of turned technology in a really um, negative direction. And I guess, you know, my my particular interest is in that when I've given talks about, you know, post-scarcity and the potential of technologies to liberate us, for many years now, there's always been one person in the audience saying, yeah, but isn't crypto really the future? Because instead of having limitless copies of things that everyone can share, we can like gatekeep those things and monetize them. And instead of, you know, everyone enjoying art, you know, we can have art that only one person owns, even though it can be infinitely copied. And, you know, so people can make money off of that. And there's this kind of way that I also feel like there's a kind of, um, there's a, there's a kind of, denaturing and and um, something almost really perverse in the in the whole web three conception with regard to the future of technology that it seems like this book is really in in some ways like a, a reaction to well i think perverse is the right word um and so you know the the i'll start with the with the stuff that i share with crypto people because when I listen to crypto people talk, I often hear things that rhyme with the things I say, decentralization, spreading power around, mm -hmm. privacy, and so on. And and um, it's 
in some ways not dissimilar to the things that I hear sometimes out of conspiratorialist mouths, right? The the I just wrote a thing called the swivel-eyed loons have a point about the anti-15 minute city protests in Oxford, which were deranged, right? But also we're like, if they put uh, automated license plate recognition cameras all around Oxford to limit vehicular traffic, that could be used as a police surveillance dragnet. Like, yeah, 100%. If they, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah. institute a central bank digital currency can be used for financial censorship and for surveillance. Totally, right? Um, the 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 fear that um, there will be quote unquote climate lockdowns that will be uh, used as a pretext to limit the movements of everyday working people while elites violate those rules in the, with impunity that happened during COVID lockdowns in the yeah. UK. Uh, you know, the the Dominic Cummings who was responsible for that program in the UK. Uh, broke the rule, drove 250 miles, and then took a detour to a castle uh, while people were like locked indoors, not able to visit their dying relatives. Boris Johnson, who was prime minister at the time, threw party after party after party, these huge booze ups that, uh, you know, at a time when people weren't even allowed to to visit um, the gravesides or the funerals of people who were dying. I, you know, it's not wrong to say that this stuff is going to happen. And when I hear crypto people say, centralization, uh, financial interdiction, you know, centralization and financial processes that allow um, uh, states or other powerful actors to decide who can and can't have money, um, the, that uh, the centralization and moderation decisions and so on, that these are wielded in ways that are unaccountable and often sinister. Uh, hmm. It's not wrong, right? I, they, but then I look at their methods and I look at kind of their I guess their epistemology, like what they blame this on and what they think will solve it. And it's incoherent in every way. Like it's incoherent economically. I just don't think money works the way that they think it works. You know, this kind of gold bug <laughs> thing where money begins yeah. in the with the in the public where someone can't make change for a cow and chickens. And so they just spontaneously start using gold. And then uh, the government comes along and takes away the gold. Like it just never happened, right? That's just like not where money comes from. It's not how money works. So just like as a plain matter of like fact, that's wrong. Um, this idea that inflation arises from reckless money printing as opposed to real resource constraints that are themselves downstream of the decision not to spend, right? Like, you know, it's very hard for the economy to have enough things to buy if there aren't highways and educated people and hospitals. Um, those those economies do not produce the real goods that are themselves the constraint on how much money we can have, right? Like, because you can't buy things that aren't there. And if you try to, then you have bidding wars and prices go up. So they're wrong about that. And then they're wrong, like just technologically, like the ledger doesn't do what they say it does. NFTs don't work the way they say they do. And, you know, I, I was giving a talk um, at a bookstore in Miami and there was a woman in the front row who was asking me about NFTs. And she said, like, can't we resolve a lot of these problems with NFTs? And I just said, like, well, NFTs <laughs> don't um, they don't they don't establish ownership. They don't establish copyright claims. They don't pay royalties. And she was like, no, no, no. Yes, they do. And I was just like, well, look. All an NFT is, is a URL inscribed in the ledger with uh, two identities, right? So Cory Doctorow, URL, Lee Vinsel. And then we interpret from that that Cory Doctorow made the thing at the URL and gave it to Lee Vinsel. But maybe I just took some other URL and put it there. There's no way to check that. And then maybe I add a smart contract to it that says whenever this work changes hands, a royalty will be paid to Cory Doctorow. But that smart contract is just a computer program that like has a thing that says if an event called a sale occurs, then kick some money to Cory Doctorow. If I run that in an exchange that doesn't call the thing you and I would call a sale a sale, they call it a sale underscore one, that subroutine just never triggers, right? And there is no law that requires that you use that um, exchange. And if there was a law that did it, we wouldn't need the smart contract. We could just have a contract and we wouldn't have to burn down a forest every time someone wanted to buy some art, right? So like, even if you take them on their own terms, they're just wrong. And the fact that so many useful hours were wasted, so much money was wasted, so much energy was wasted, uh, so much confusion was sown and and really, like, so many people's 
naive but absolutely correct sense that things were screwed up and needed to get fixed were, were, were then turned into this thing that comes out of hard right conspiratorial economics is like Austrian, you know, gold bug economics, like real, like, uh, you know, this is, this is like straight out of a Heinlein novel, right? Like you should <laughs> stockpile uh, gold bullion and thumb drives full of crypto is like, it's just, it's like wrong in every way as a, as like an economic matter and as a way of solving our problems. And a lot of what I think about right now in my political work, both both in the technical work and in the wider projects of a you know better world, is like what what do we do to redeem the redeemable people who got sucked into this, who do care about decentralizing yeah. power, who do that's want a, a better question. world, but found themselves yeah. in this wrong thing? And that's what I mean. A lot of this book is about like the why crypto is not the solution to a problem that we should care about. Yeah. I was, you know, I was reading this book and, uh, you know, you're, you're not 67 years old, but you're not a young guy either. No. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking about like the education of Cory Doctorow and I was thinking about your whole career and where this novel fits in it. So I was thinking like, all right, let's start with like, you know, you, you've been long affiliated with the, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF. And, um, you know, the EFF starts off as very anti-regulation, mostly focused on government, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, some, sure. some people call it cyber libertarian. There's certainly libertarians affiliated with it. Yep. Were. Um, but then later we see this shift and, you know, you wrote this recent book, Choke, po Choke Point Capitalism, how big tech and big content captured creative labor markets. We see this concern rise around centralized power in the form of monopolies. Um, and you become concerned about that. So, I mean, I think this happens in general for EFF. A lot of EFF folks are like, okay, we're focused on government, but these things, there's a lot of centralized power here too. And then, you know, I mean, you know, I think about Little Brother, a book I really loved when it first came out and I, I read it, I remember very vividly. And, um, you know, you've been affiliated or cypherpunks uh, and, you know, and the people who put a lot of hope in cryptography um, but you know, then there's, you have this character in this new book, Danny Laser, uh, one of the main characters who's, you know, a crypto, maybe billionaire, how much he's worth is, is open to interpretation. Um, but he starts life at a cypherpunk, some great computer history museum references in here about his cypherpunk, uh, interviews. And so I just wondered, like, you know, we go from EFF kind of libertarian and, you know, focus on government. Then we, there's this concern about big tech. Cypherpunks, there's some hope there. But then, dude, they take your ciphers and your crypto and they turn it into like this bullshit, right? And so I wondered, you know, I just, I'm just thinking about you, man. It's like, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> Tell me about the education of yeah. Cory Doctorow, you well, know? Look, I was a uh, spittle flecked, excitable adolescent using an Apple II Plus in the 1980s. Uh, actually, went to elementary school, a little weird alternative school in Toronto with Tim Wu, who went on to coin the term net neutrality. And there's some weird parallels between our two careers, which is quite fun. Um, and uh, my folks were leftists. They're, they're Trotskyists, uh, organizers, uh, politically active. My dad's a computer scientist. We used to go visit my grandparents in their seniors community in Fort Lauderdale. And because there was nothing to do, we'd drive to Disney World. And we'd basically have conversations about like what Disney World would be like if it were run like Project Cybersyn, you know, if it, like what would a people's <laughs> Disney World be if you could bring all this like incredible automation and sort of thoughtful, creative technology to a more popular uh, framing, huh. which is, you know, how you get down and out in the Magic Kingdom. Um, and, you know, and I, I was a science fiction fan. I grew up in the shadow of a brilliant woman, uh, Judith Merrill who was a organizer, writer, editor, uh, and critic who after the 1968 Chicago police riots took, uh, she had divorced Frederick Pohl. She took their kids and went into voluntary exile in Canada, uh, and brought she and Pohl's library and donated them to the Toronto public library system where they formed the nucleus of what's now the largest public science fiction reference collection in the world. And she was the writer in residence. We took a school trip there when I was like 10 and she said, hey, kids, if you've ever got a story you want me to critique, you can bring it down and I'll critique it for you. And I knew her 
partly because my dad knew her from anti-war circles, but also because when my mom was in teacher's college, my dad would babysit me and, or, you know, not babysit, when my dad would be home with me and my brother, we would watch Doctor Who. And she used to introduce Doctor Who every week on public television and say like, when we, when I was living in the Futurian polyamorous science fiction leftist house in New York, we came up with this idea. She was like slappy squirrel, you know, (laughs) Ray Bradbury was in town and he was fucking, he was fucking, uh, 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 Harlan Ellison's girlfriend and we would uh, and we were having a spaghetti dinner and uh, CM Cornbluth drank too much wine and he said what if and then we all wrote 11 stories about it and sold them all to like 10 different science fiction magazines um, and so I kind of knew her and she had talked this local fan into starting what's now the oldest science fiction bookstore in the world, which I ended up working in. She the, the thing she did at our local public broadcaster turned into this incredible science fiction television show uh, about science fiction, not a sh- not a science fiction fiction show, but a show about the industry and its ideas called Prisoners of Gravity that I consulted to. Like she had this movable feast, this this social thing that happened every six weeks called Toronto Hydra that I was like hugely formative to how I got to know people in my uh in my milieu and then she started these writers workshops with the writers who would come and bring her manuscripts and i ended up a part of one of those writers workshops still going the cecil street workshop and peter watts and carl schrader madeline ashby all these writers went through it we're all judy's kids so i i ended up in in kind of science fiction and this kind of radical tradition because of that so i had computers i had science fiction um and then through that i got involved in reading cyberpunk it was the 80s uh, and through there, I started reading Bruce Sterling. Through that, I read The Hacker Crackdown, which is Sterling's history of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Mm-hmm. I also had an old pal from Radical Summer Camp who was working in an anarchist bookstore in Montreal who sent me the Whole Earth Review cyberpunk issue, which mm-hmm. like blew my mind. Uh, and so I knew about, I got on the well and I knew about, um, uh, EFF through the whole Earth Review. I read the uh, thing Barlow wrote about Operation Sun Devil and the raids the, that the mm-hmm. Secret Service conducted and the Steve Jackson games raids. I was a gamer, so I knew about Steve Jackson. And then I just became like, like EFF was just this thing that was this very important institution in my life. When I did a startup in the late 90s that was doing peer-to-peer free and open search called Open Cola, and we got in, kind of incidentally embroiled in the copyright wars because of what was going on with Napster, our programmers were cult of the dead, uh, uh, cult of the dead cow programmers who'd been defended by EFF. They put me in touch with EFF. I ended up working with them to like cool out our VCs. And at a certain point, I just quit the startup and went to work for EFF. And then I fought all these fights with EFF. And it's a bit like, um, you know, as you, as you, uh, it's a bit like the meme that the, you know, galaxy brain meme, right? Where like you're, you're viewing it in the, but not in a sarcastic way, you're viewing it in the micro kind of at the coal face. And then the more experience you get, the broader your horizon gets. So, you know, the first thing I fought was the broadcast flag, which was, um, uh, which would have basically given the FCC the power to, um, restrict any digital technology that wasn't endorsed by at least four movie studios. So like you couldn't build a computer or software unless at least four movie studios greenlit it. There was some complex formula with movie studios, cable operators and and, um, TV studios. It was, you know, just bananas. The FCC actually made the rule. Michael Powell is Colin Powell's son made the rule. But then we sued them in the Second Circuit and won. And or maybe it was the D.C. Circuit. It was the D.C. Circuit and won. Uh, And um, we just got involved in all these fights where winning got harder and harder and harder. And we were losing because there was increased concentration. Like the reason the entertainment Uh, industry hmm. kicked the tech industry's ass in the Napster Wars is because there were like seven entertainment companies and there were like a hundred tech companies. And in aggregate, their turnover was orders of magnitude larger than the entertainment industry, but they got in each other's way, right? Like they wanted different things and some of them would sell out. I used to call them Vichy nerds, right? They would sell out to the entertainment industry on their terrible anti-privacy demands right where you have to surveil everything your users do to prevent them from infringing copyright and then when the tech sector became just as monopolized as the entertainment sector not only did they no longer have their users back 
but like we also just started losing all of our fights right yeah and and moreover it's interesting beca- yeah it became like the last scene of an- of animal farm right where like the entertainment industry and the tech industry had indistinguishable agendas for tech at a certain mm-hmm. point you know, there's a thing we talk about in in choke point capitalism that the scams that youtube does to musicians as a tech firm are indistinguishable from the scams that spotify does to musicians where spotify was designed by sony warner and universal or the the major shareholders in in spotify mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. doesn't really matter who's exploiting you right that the you know it's not that like tech is kinder to you or entertainment is kinder to you as a creative laborer right the thing that determines whether someone is kind to you is whether they have to be this is why that you know doctrine that if you're not paying for the product you're the product is just foolish right companies Mm. don't like treat you kindly because they respect you because you paid them think about elon musk and his eight dollar weirdos right companies (laughs) treat you well because they're disciplined by some combination of Mm. regulation and competition nothing else causes them to treat you well I, that kind of brings me, and this is like, you know, uh, this is kind of one place I wanted to get to, especially with Aaron here. It's just, you know, I felt like, well, how does this relate to your your post-scarcity books, the new book? And I was thinking like, um, you, it's not, I don't want, the term near future science fiction is not getting me what I want because you've done other books that feel near future. But this one felt like really, there are moments of it that are really gritty. Mm-hmm. And really putting our face in the inequality and the the problems of today. And I was just wondering yeah, how you think about the relationship between this book and your kind of more bigger picture post-scarcity texts. Yeah. Well, I mean, those those books like Walk Away uh, and the book that I've got coming out in November, uh, The Lost Cause, which is about a post-Green New Deal uh, uh, counter-reformation where the there's an uprising of... Uh, it's a coalition of like white nationalist militias and seasteading libertarian freaks who are into cryptocurrency and uh, and about how they how that, you know, how the people who are in the Reformation deal with it, who, who you know, breathe a sigh of relief because they're finally addressing the climate change with the gravitas that it deserves. And, and now seeing that all snatched away from them, um, you know, I, I, those are those books are parables, right? They're metaphors. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and, um, I think that, you know, this book is also a parable and a metaphor, but it's, it's maybe more of a simile than a metaphor, you know, that, mm-hmm. that, that, um, it's, it's a lot closer to reality, but it's still a kind of trying to raise the same ideological points, right. W- mm-hmm. Which is that, um, scarce, like creating scarcity for the sake of economics puts the cor- cart before the horse, you know, is that scene in the beginning of um, of Walkaway where they invade a factory for something called a communist party? That's not a political institution. It's a festival. Right. They, they say being a being at a communist party doesn't make you a communist any more than being at a birthday party makes you a birthdayist. And um, they I was wondering they, about that because, you know, my my friends and I, we were we um, we in 2009, when they raised the tuition at the University of California, uh-huh. We started this like movement to occupy, uh, yeah, you know, university that. buildings and stuff. And and there's you know there's like a a video of someone at one of these big dance parties that we held. Oh, yeah? in occupied um, buildings where someone shouts, "This is what a communist party looks like!" And then the oh, beat that's drops. hilarious. There's no. like a kind of techno thing. <laughs> <laughs> and when I read the beginning of Walkway, I was like, "Whoa, this is like my life in literature." That, that's like yeah. I didn't know about that. My life. <laughs> I mean, I'd seen the old uh, the old T shirt that says "Communist Party." It's got Lenin and and Marx and maybe Mao blowing party uh, party horns. I, I've, or Lenin yeah. and Marx and someone Che or something. Um, so and it says communist party but uh you know they there's this little uh diatribe in that where one of the characters says like look um this factory has the raw materials the skilled workers and the the capital the machinery needed to make things that people want but the spreadsheet says we can't and mm-hmm. that this like we have now taken the thing that's supposed to well this isn't said but this is the implication that the thing that was supposed to help us understand w- how the system works has become the system 
right? That, mm-hmm. that we have, we have become, uh, perversely beholden to the model, right? This is like, mm. I actually do this all the time because I, I have no sense of direction. I have terrible spatial sense. Staying in a lot of hotels because I'm on a book tour, I will never turn the right direction out of the elevator to go to my room. Doesn't matter how many times I've been to that room, I mm-hmm. will end up walking to the other end of the hallway before I figure it out. And drives my wife crazy because uh, as soon as sat navs were invented, GPS, I just put one in in the car. I actually bought one and traveled with it for rental cars before they had them in rental cars because I just couldn't follow a map. And I just follow this blindly wherever it leads me. And there have been multiple occasions in which we've like nearly driven off a bridge because I've been like, well, we just have to do what the GPS says because I am not capable of understanding directions beyond what the GPS says. And, yeah. you know, economically, we have fallen into that trap, right? We, we There are so mm. many instances in which the spreadsheet says no and you know we have the the capital sitting idle we have the need we have the stuff we have the feedstock yep. and we're just like well if the if the machine says no i mean you know the the most um grotesque version of this is empty houses yeah right? where the, amen just, just holy moly what could be more grotesque Aaron, I feel like this is right at the heart of your project, actually, this problem of the spreadsheet and how we get stuck on these models, right? I mean, this is right at the heart of what you're trying to critique. Yeah, I guess, you know, before talking about that, I wanted to ask Corey about, um, I'm not an expert in science fiction, but I've been trying to read a lot of the kind of post-scarcity literature. And I guess I want to ask you about two possible analogies to what we're seeing in your work. Like one would be, thinking about the trajectory of the Strugatsky brothers. You know, they start off writing a book like Noon 22nd Century that's like a bunch of funny short stories about spacefaring communists who accidentally end up in a post-scarcity future and like the hilarity that ensues as they try to use all the machinery of this new world. And then, you know, by the by the 70s and 80s, they're writing books like Roadside Picnic where that beautiful future is now this, you know, this zone that's basically like full of brilliant technologies, but that like no one can understand, you know, humanity is just like scavenging through paradise, um, you know, to make a few bucks, like the the dream of that, what's in new 22nd century is kind of, kind of gone. And, and I wonder, like, is it, you know, is there something here about how, like, with a visionary sense, we can see the way to a very different future, but you know, as reality impinges on us and we become aware of the forces that are kind of like, um, you know, blocking our paths and how powerful they are, how powerful these gigantic governments are, corporations that are controlling a lot of what happens, you know, that there's something there about, yeah, like how hard it is to get to the future. And I I also Mm -hmm. wonder there, like when I read Walk Away, I was thinking a lot about Neil Stevenson's The Diamond Age, you know, and which is also a book like Walk Away about how maybe because we face such incredible obstacles and the rich are so powerful and states are so powerful, there's there's something about the need to think about like how complex the transitions to a better future yeah. might be and the kind of like surprising pathways and dead ends and you know the the unexpected te- even technological openings that might you know, by falling into the hands of, I don't know, a homeless person might somehow, you know, create the events that unexpectedly lead us into a brilliant world. And I guess I, I'm sort of wondering about those, uh, yeah, aspects of your trajectory as a sci-fi writer. Well, I, I talked before about like the activist project of reawakening people's imagination. Um, and I think that a, a lot of political debate it sometimes gets, I think, misclassified as culture war stuff, but it's about imagination and about what what can and can't be imagined and considered plausible. So think about um, Margaret Thatcher and there is no alternative, right? Like, which is really like it's a uh, uh, a demand dressed up as an observation, right? It, what it really means is don't try and think of alternatives. Uh, not not it is impossible to do so, and. Um, you know, I, I, I think that uh, likewise, you know, the, the corollary of that is uh, the outcome we have predicted for this project 
is uh, inevitable, right? So they're both forms of inevitabilism. Like, um, you know, the capitalist project will produce abundance given enough time, right? Just like we, we just have to do, yep. we just have to capitalist harder and we'll get there. <laughs> and so something like, like um, Roadside Picnic is really a story uh, about how it could go wrong. It's a, it's a way to kind of counter the anti-imaginative imagining, right? The, the thing that says there's only one way to think about how this project ends, to project it forward. Um, it was once on a very memorable science fiction panel with Robert Silverberg, who's this great sort of golden age science fiction writer about science fiction and its supposed predictive power and what it really means. And, and uh, the subject of Heinlein came up and he sniffed and he said, and he's very urbane. He's got a little spade beard. He's very, you know, quiet, very dry sense of humor. And he says, oh yes, Robert A. Timeline. Because Heinlein had all these timelines in his books showing you what the future was going to be, right? And and not just not just the you know not just the hard right characters like Heinlein, but also like Asimov and Harry Seldon yeah. and the idea that that we can predict the future to three thousand years out. And there is like a very political act in claiming mm. that the future is contingent, right? Without it making any specific claims about what the future will hold. Just saying that the future, what the future holds is up to us is itself like a very powerful statement. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I, inevitabilism is such a, a sin in our technical discourse as well. Yeah. You know, Mark Zuckerberg wants you to think that like it is inconceivable to talk to your friends without being spied on. And Google wants you to think that there's no way to have a search engine that doesn't surveil. Uh, and yet, like both of these companies, when they started, didn't do surveillance and in fact disclaimed surveillance and grew to the point where they could surveil with impunity because they were so large and successful that people couldn't imagine leaving them by not surveilling. Right. Mm -hmm. So like we, we, you know, who are you going to believe Mark Zuckerberg or Mark Zuckerberg in 2006? Right. <laughs> when he said, stop using MySpace, come using, come start using Facebook. We're better than MySpace. We don't spy on you and we never will, which was his pitch in 2006. Right. So um, I, I, I like this, uh, this role that science fiction has. And I think historians really get it and historian science fiction writers are a very special uh subcategory of writers who do this really well uh, and i always mention in this context my my colleague uh, ada palmer uh, and ada is um she's a tenured uh renaissance historian at the university of chicago quite heterodox she had a, a an anonymous blog called ex urbe that she did not reveal her authorship of until after she got tenure because it was so controversial uh where she wrote about um Florence during the Inquisitions, which is her area of study, um, uh, homosexuality, witchcraft, uh, uh, heresy, and so on, and how the Inquisition related to them. And she is famous at UC for doing this annual project where she um, has her undergrads spend four weeks LARPing the election of the Medici's Pope. And each undergrad is given the identity of a real cardinal or a member of a great family. And they spend four weeks like horse trading and betraying each other, making alliances. And then there's this fake Gothic cathedral on campus and they rent it out for the climax. And uh, she has costumes for everyone. She's got a Google alert for theater troops that are selling off their costumes. <laughs> she dresses them all up in Renaissance Florentine drag. And they go into the cathedral and they invest the Pope. And in the final four every year, two of those characters are always the same because there is a great force of history bearing mm -hmm. down on that moment that determines that these two are definitely going to be in the running. The other two have never been the same, right? There's, there's never been mm -hmm. a repeat of the other two because human action changes what happens. History, even history operating under the constraints of the forces of history is contingent on human agency. Right. And I think that that's what science fiction's at its best does is it reminds you in that Luddite way that what the technology does isn't nearly as important as who it does it for and who it does it to. And the, the, um, there's nothing about what the technology does that determines who it must do it for and who it must do it to. Like those are, those are choices that are often disguised as technical inevitabilities and in so many of our policy debates about tech we have regulators who don't understand tech very well who who demand things of tech that it just can't do right so this is like make us 
cryptographic systems that are strong and secure that won't let criminals or foreign spies or griefers or stalkers break into your data and 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 do terrible things to you but make it fail instantaneously if a cop needs to see what's inside of it or a spy right and and when technologists go to governments and say that's not a thing that anyone can make or will ever be able to make they do this thing that we in policy circles call nerd harder right just go out and figure it out i got faith in you guys you're wizards right and, and the problem with the nerd harder response, right, with saying, oh, well, you're just telling us to nerd harder, is there are other times when policymakers demand things of technologists that are possible, which they insist are impossible, like interoperability, like privacy, and so on. And they say, oh, no, 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 that's as impossible as making cryptographic systems that work except when you need them to fail. And, and when the regulators or policymakers say, no, 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 we think you can. We go, ha ha, you're just saying nerd harder. And like, we, you need to have the praxis to be able to distinguish between the times when technologists insist that something isn't contingent and is in fact inevitable, like either mm. crypto works or it doesn't, uh, from the times when they're just bullshitting in order to, yeah. you know, get some goodies for themselves. Well, guys, um, I know we could do this for like eight more hours and not even <laughs> run out of steam we'd probably have to get drinks in, at some point but uh this has been a lot of fun thanks so much for doing it with me today yeah i'm gonna be in charlotte's uh sh sh no somewhere in virginia okay uh i think where virginia tech is in october maybe we can see each other yeah let's do that yeah and Aaron, thank you so much for joining me that has been a lot of fun bud yeah, yeah Aaron, thanks for having me lovely to talk to you i'm so honored that you're doing this this work that implicates my own that's so cool yeah and Corey, can you just say i i've been very gratified to see you use the crita hype concept a bit can you just say i i it struck me that it, you found it useful and i just wondered how uh you know you found it useful well look i i think that there are a lot of people who are or could be comrades comrades yeah. with whom i have disagreements with and those disagreements they turn on th their lack of technical nous that leads them to believe that the tech companies aren't lying when right. they claim that certain things are impossible um or when yeah. they claim that they're doing certain things that that are not what they're doing right yeah. and um you know i i I'll, uh, that started i think with um with the copyright wars where there are a lot of people who really care about artist rights um who think that uh it is possible for tech firms to like distinguish between copyright infringement and not copyright infringement who often when they critique the tech firms say well look they're able to do x y and z which they're not doing right they say oh well look they've got automated ai moderation that can stop harassment why can't they stop copyright infringement? It's like, well, they they don't have the AI tools that can stop harassment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's just a lie they tell to Congress about why they're not paying their moderators, right? Why they don't yeah, need yeah. to pay more moderators, right? Like that's not, it's just not true. And so, you know, you don't, you can't accept it at, at face value. And I think it reached right. its apotheosis in the post Cambridge Analytica era with Zuboff and with her fellow travelers yeah. who took the tech firms at face value when they claimed that they were evil wizards who'd figured out how to hack dopamine loops and who just like warmed up a bunch of largely discredited Skinnerian nonsense and which they themselves may believe. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and then kind of use that as the basis for a critique that, gets you precisely nowhere that in fact gets you somewhere worse than no nowhere you know in the case of zuboff the thing that i found most alarming about her book is what i call the the night of the comet problem where she says look they've invented mind control rays we know because they put it in their patent applications not understanding i guess that patent applications are the locus of just like the most absurd bullshit that tech actually issues it makes their press releases look like sober <laughs> by comparison because mm -hmm. if you can trick a patent examiner into believing the nonsense in a patent application then you get like a treatable asset yeah. you know you don't just get some like pr wins um and and she says well if they've got mind control rays and we break up the tech firms this is like exploding the comet that's headed towards earth that just turns it into a million meteors that destroy every city, right? We have to steer the comet, right? Yeah. We have to like, we have to, 
perfect Mark Zuckerberg or replace him with a better Mark Zuckerberg, mm -hmm. but not like shatter Mark Zuckerberg, not shatter Facebook into a thousand companies. And I think that that's actually worse than useless, right? I think that that, yeah. that, that model of constitutional monarchy where Zuckerberg gets to reign forever, but he, you know, allows himself to be drained in, yeah, in, yeah. in kind of golden chains by, by an aristocracy composed of regulators who've cycled out of the tech companies and are now going to spend yeah. a, a turn as, as, as wise stewards to them instead of, uh, you know, the, uh, the effectuators of them. I think that's just so dangerous in terms of like just enshrining that dominance forever. Yeah. Well, this has been great guys. Thanks again. Thank you. Um, yeah, and thanks. thanks for, for talking about the book. I'm really excited about it. I, I'm, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. It means a lot. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. You can reach us with questions, comments, and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or by following me on Twitter at STS underscore news or on YouTube at People's Things. Our podcast is distributed by the New Books Network, the leading platform for academic podcasts, so that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Peoples and things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Joe Fort is the producer for the podcast, and Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. This podcast and other Peoples and Things programming are produced in affiliation with Virginia Tech Publishing and supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. For the entire Peoples and Things team, I am Lee Vinsel. And most importantly, I want to thank you for listening. Thanks.